0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Souls of Black Folk by W. E. B. Du Bois Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle Chapter nine OF THE SONS OF MASTER AND MAN Life treads on life, and heart on heart; We press too close in church and mart To keep a dream or grave apart. mrs Browning phenomenon of the contact of diverse races of men is to have new exemplification during the new century. Indeed, the characteristic of our age is the contact of European civilization with the world's undeveloped peoples. Whatever we may say of the results of such contact in the past, it certainly forms a chapter in human action not pleasant to look back upon. War, murder, slavery, extermination, and debauchery This has again and again been the result of carrying civilization and the blessed gospel to the isles of the sea and the heathen without the law. Nor does it altogether satisfy the conscience of the modern world to be told complacently that all this has been right and proper, the fated triumph of strength over weakness, of righteousness over evil, of superiors over inferiors, It would certainly be soothing if one could readily believe all this, and yet there are too many ugly facts for everything to be thus easily explained away. We feel and know that there are many delicate differences in race psychology, numberless changes that our crude social measurements are not yet able to follow minutely, which explain much of history and social development. At the same time, too, We know that these considerations have never adequately explained or excused the triumph of brute force and cunning over weakness and innocence. It is then the strife of all honorable men of the twentieth century to see that in the future competition of the races, the survival of the fittest shall mean the triumph of the good, the beautiful, and the true. That we may be able to preserve for future civilization all that is really fine and noble and strong, and not continue to put a premium on greed and impudence and cruelty. To bring this hope to fruition, we are compelled daily to turn more and more to a conscientious study of the phenomena of race contact, to a study frank and fair, and not falsified and colored by our wishes or our fears. And we have in the South, as fine a field for such a study as the world affords, a field, to be sure, which the average American scientist deems somewhat beneath his dignity, and which the average man who is not a scientist knows all about, but nevertheless a line of study which, by reason of the enormous race complications with which God seems about to punish this nation, must increasingly claim our sober attention, study, and thought. We must ask, what are the actual relations of whites and blacks in the South? And we must be answered not by apology or fault-finding, but by a plain, unvarnished tale. In the civilized life of today, the contact of men and their relations to each other fall in a few main lines of action and communication. There is first the physical proximity of home and dwelling places, the way in which neighborhoods group themselves, and the contiguity of neighborhoods. Secondly, and in our age chiefest, there are the economic relations, the methods by which individuals cooperate for earning a living, for the mutual satisfaction of wants, for the production of wealth. Next, there are the political relations, the cooperation in social control, in group government, in laying and paying the burden of taxation. In the fourth place, there are the less tangible but highly important forms of intellectual contact and commerce, the interchange of ideas through conversation and conference, through periodicals and libraries, and above all, the gradual formation for each community, of that curious tertium quid which we call public opinion. Closely allied with this come the various forms of social contact in everyday life, in travel, in theaters, in house gatherings, in marrying, and giving in marriage. Finally, there are the varying forms of religious enterprise, of moral teaching and benevolent endeavor. These are the principal ways in which men living in the same communities are brought into contact with each other. It is my present task, therefore, to indicate from my point of view how the black race in the South meet and mingle with the whites in these matters of everyday life. First as to physical dwelling, it is usually possible to draw in nearly every southern community a physical color line on the map, on the one side of which whites dwell, and on the other, Negroes. The winding and intricacy of the geographical color line varies, of course, in different communities. I know of some towns where a straight line drawn through the middle of the main street separates nine-tenths of the whites from nine-tenths of the blacks. In other towns, the older settlement of whites has been encircled by a broad band of blacks. In still other cases, little settlements or nuclei of blacks have sprung up amid surrounding whites. Usually in cities, each street has its distinctive color and only now and then do the colors meet in close proximity. Even in the country something of this segregation is manifest in the smaller areas and of course in the larger phenomena of the black belt. All this segregation by color is largely independent of that natural clustering by social grades common to all communities. A Negro slum may be in dangerous proximity to a white residence quarter, while it is quite common to find a white slum planted in the heart of a respectable Negro district. One thing, however, seldom occurs. The best of the whites and the best of the Negroes almost never live in anything like close proximity. It thus happens that in nearly every southern town and city both whites and blacks commonly see the worst of each other. This is a vast change from the situation in the past when through the close contact of master and house-servant in the patriarchal big house one found the best of both races in close contact and sympathy while at the same time the squalor and dull round of toil among the field hands was removed from the sight and hearing of the family. One can easily see how a person who saw slavery thus from his father's parlors, and sees freedom on the streets of a great city, fails to grasp or comprehend the whole of the new picture. On the other hand, the settled belief of the mass of the Negroes that the southern white people do not have the black man's best interest at heart, has been intensified in later years by this continual daily contact of the better class of blacks with the worst representatives of the white race. Coming now to the economic relations of the races, we are on ground made familiar by study, much discussion, and no little philanthropic effort. And yet with all this there are many essential elements in the cooperation of Negroes and whites for work and wealth that are too readily overlooked or not thoroughly understood. The average American can easily conceive of a rich land awaiting development and filled with black laborers. To him the southern problem is simply that of making efficient working men out of this material, by giving them the requisite technical skill and the help of invested capital. The problem, however, is by no means as simple as this, from the obvious fact that these working men have been trained for centuries as slaves. They exhibit, therefore, all the advantages and defects of such training. They are willing and good-natured, but not self-reliant, provident, or careful. If now the economic development of the South is to be pushed to the verge of exploitation, as seems probable, then we have a mass of workingmen thrown into relentless competition with the workingmen of the world, but handicapped by a training the very opposite to that of the modern self-reliant democratic laborer. What the black laborer needs is careful personal guidance, group leadership of men with hearts in their bosoms to train them to foresight, carefulness, and honesty. Nor does it require any fine-spun theories of racial differences to prove the necessity of such group training, after the brains of the race have been knocked out by 250 years of assiduous education in submission, carelessness, and stealing. After emancipation, it was the plain duty of someone to assume this group leadership and training of the negro laborer. I will not stop here to inquire whose duty it was, whether that of the white ex-master who had profited by unpaid toil, or the northern philanthropist whose persistence brought on the crisis, or the national government whose edict freed the bondmen. I will not stop to ask whose duty it was, but I insist it was the duty of someone to see that these workingmen were not left alone and unguided, without capital, without land, without skill, without economic organization, without even the bald protection of law, order and decency, left in a great land, not to settle down to slow and careful internal development, but destined to be thrown almost immediately into relentless and sharp competition with the best of modern workingmen, under an economic system where every participant is fighting for himself, and too often, utterly regardless of the rights, or welfare of his neighbor For we must never forget That the economic system of the South Today which has succeeded the old regime Is not the same system As that of the old industrial North Of England or of France With their trade unions Their restrictive laws Their written and unwritten commercial customs And their long experience It is rather a copy Of that England of the early 19th century Before the Factory Act the England that wrung pity from thinkers and fired the wrath of Carlisle. The rod of empire that passed from the hands of southern gentlemen in 1865, partly by force, partly by their own petulance, has never returned to them. Rather it has passed to those men who have come to take charge of the industrial exploitation of the New South, the sons of poor whites fired with a new thirst for wealth and power, thrifty and avaricious Yankees, and unscrupulous immigrants. Into the hands of these men the southern laborers, white and black, have fallen, and this is to their sorrow. For the laborers as such, there is in these new captains of industry neither love nor hate, neither sympathy nor romance. It is a cold question of dollars and dividends. Under such a system, all labor is bound to suffer. Even the white laborers are not yet intelligent, thrifty, and well-trained enough to maintain themselves against the powerful inroads of organized capital. The results among them, even, are long hours of toil, low wages, child labor, and lack of protection against usury and cheating. But among the black laborers, all this is aggravated first by a race prejudice, which varies from a doubt and distrust among the best element of whites, to a frenzied hatred among the worst. And secondly, it is aggravated, as I have said before, by the wretched economic heritage of the freedmen from slavery. With this training it is difficult for the freedman to learn to grasp the opportunities already opened to him. And the new opportunities are seldom given him, but go by favor to the whites. Left by the best elements of the South with little protection or oversight, he has been made in law and custom the victim of the worst and most unscrupulous men in each community. The crop lien system, which is depopulating the fields of the South, is not simply the result of shiftlessness on the part of Negroes, but is also the result of cunningly devised laws as to mortgages, liens, and misdemeanors, which can be made by consciousless men to entrap and ensnare the unwary until escape is impossible, further toil a farce, and protest a crime. I have seen in the black belt of Georgia an ignorant, honest Negro buy and pay for a farm in installments three separate times, and then in the face of law and decency the enterprising American who sold it to him pocketed the money and deed and left the black man landless to labor on his own land at thirty cents a day. I have seen a black farmer fall in debt to a white storekeeper and that storekeeper go to his farm and strip it of every single marketable article mules, plows, stored crops, tools, furniture, bedding, clocks, looking glass, and all this without a sheriff or officer in the face of the law for homestead exemptions, and without rendering to a single responsible person any account or reckoning. And such proceedings can happen and will happen in any community where a class of ignorant toilers are placed, by custom and race prejudice, beyond the pale of sympathy and race brotherhood. So long as the best elements of a community do not feel in duty bound to protect and train and care for the weaker members of their group, they leave them to be preyed upon by these swindlers and rascals. This unfortunate economic situation does not mean the hindrance of all advance in the black South or the absence of a class of black landlords and mechanics who, in spite of disadvantages, are accumulating property and making good citizens. But it does mean that this class is not nearly so large as a fairer economic system might easily make it, that those who survive in the competition are handicapped so as to accomplish much less than they deserve to, and that, above all, the personnel of the successful class is left to chance and accident and not to any intelligent culling or reasonable methods of selection. As a remedy for this, there is but one possible procedure. We must accept some of the race prejudice in the South as a fact, deplorable in its intensity, unfortunate in its results, and dangerous for the future, but nevertheless a hard fact which only time can efface. We cannot hope, then, in this generation, or for several generations, that the mass of the whites can be brought to assume that close, sympathetic, and self-sacrificing leadership of the blacks which their present situation so eloquently demands Such leadership, from social teaching and example must come from the blacks themselves For some time men doubted as to whether the Negro could develop such leaders But today no one seriously disputes the capacity of individual Negroes to assimilate the culture and common sense of modern civilization and to pass it on to some extent at least, to their fellows. If this is true, then here is the path out of the economic situation, and here is the imperative demand for trained Negro leaders of character and intelligence, men of skill, men of light and leading, college-bred men, black captains of industry, and missionaries of culture, men who thoroughly comprehend and know modern civilization, and can take hold of Negro communities and raise and train them by force of precept and example, deep sympathy, and inspiration of common blood and ideals. But if such men are to be effective, they must have some power. They must be backed by the best public opinion of these communities, and able to wield for their objects and aims, such weapons as the experience of the world has taught are indispensable to human progress. Of such weapons, the greatest perhaps in the modern world is the power of the ballot, and this brings me to a consideration of the third form of contact between whites and blacks in the South, political activity. In the attitude of the American mind toward Negro suffrage can be traced with unusual accuracy the prevalent conceptions of government. In the fifties we were near enough the echoes of the French Revolution to believe pretty thoroughly in universal suffrage. We argued, as we thought then rather logically, that no social class was so good, so true, and so disinterested as to be trusted wholly with the political destiny of its neighbors that in every state the best arbiters of their own welfare are the persons directly affected. Consequently, that it is only by arming every hand with a ballot, with the right to have a voice in the policy of the state, that the greatest good to the greatest number could be attained. To be sure, there were objections to these arguments, but we thought we had answered them, tersely and convincingly. If someone complained of the ignorance of the voters, we answered, Educate them. If another complained of their venality, we replied, disfranchise them or put them in jail. And finally, to the men who feared demagogues and the natural perversity of some human beings, we insisted that time and bitter experience would teach the most hard-headed. It was at this time that the question of Negro suffrage in the South was raised. Here was a defenseless people suddenly made free. How were they to be protected from those who did not believe in their freedom and were determined to thwart it? "'Not by force,' said the North. "'Not by government guardianship,' said the South. "'Then by the ballot, "'the sole and legitimate defense of a free people,' "'said the common sense of the nation. "'No one thought at that time "'that the ex-slaves could use the ballot intelligently "'or very effectively, "'but they did think that the possession of so great power "'by a great class in the nation "'would compel their fellows to educate this class "'to its intelligent use. "'Meantime,' New thoughts came to the nation. The inevitable period of moral retrogression and political trickery that ever follows in the wake of war overtook us. So flagrant became the political scandals that reputable men began to leave politics alone, and politics consequently became disreputable. Men began to pride themselves on having nothing to do with their own government, and to agree tacitly with those who regarded public office as a private perquisite, In this state of mind it became easy to wink at the suppression of the Negro vote in the South, and to advise self-respecting Negroes to leave politics entirely alone. The decent and reputable citizens of the North, who neglected their own civic duties, grew hilarious over the exaggerated importance with which the Negro regarded the franchise. Thus it easily happened that more and more the better class of Negroes followed the advice from abroad and the pressure from home, and took no further interest in politics, leaving to the careless and the venal of their race the exercise of their rights as voters. The black vote that still remained was not trained and educated, but further debauched by open and unblushing bribery, or force and fraud, until the Negro voter was thoroughly inoculated with the idea that politics was a method of private gain by disreputable means. And finally, now, today, When we are awakening to the fact that the perpetuity of Republican institutions on this continent depends on the purification of the ballot, the civic training of voters, and the raising of voting to a plane of a solemn duty which a patriotic citizen neglects to his peril and to the peril of his children's children, in this day, when we are striving for a renaissance of civic virtue, what are we going to say to the black voter of the South? Are we going to tell him, still, that politics is a disreputable and useless form of human activity? Are we going to induce the best class of Negroes to take less and less interest in government, and to give up their right to take such an interest, without a protest? I am not saying a word against all legitimate efforts to purge the ballot of ignorance, pauperism, and crime, but few have pretended that the present movement for disfranchisement in the South is for such a purpose. It has been plainly and frankly declared in nearly every case that the object of the disfranchising laws is the elimination of the black man from politics. Now, is this a minor matter which has no influence on the main question of the industrial and intellectual development of the Negro? Can we establish a mass of black laborers and artisans and landholders in the South who, by law and public opinion, have absolutely no voice in shaping the laws under which they live and work? Can the modern organization of industry, assuming as it does free democratic government and the power and ability of the laboring classes to compel respect for their welfare, can this system be carried out in the South when half its laboring force is voiceless in the public councils and powerless in its own defense? Today the black man of the South has almost nothing to say as to how much he shall be taxed or how those taxes shall be expended, as to who shall execute the laws, as to how they shall do it, As to who shall make the laws, and how they shall be made It is pitiable that frantic efforts must be made at critical times To get lawmakers in some states even to listen to the respectful presentation Of the black man's side of a current controversy Daily the Negro is coming more and more to look upon law and justice Not as protecting safeguards, but as sources of humiliation and oppression The laws are made by men who have little interest in them They are executed by men who have absolutely no motive for treating the black people with courtesy or consideration. And finally, the accused lawbreaker is tried not by his peers, but too often by men who would rather punish ten innocent Negroes than let one guilty one escape. I should be the last one to deny the patent weaknesses and shortcomings of the Negro people. I should be the last to withhold sympathy from the white South in its efforts to solve its intricate social problems. I freely acknowledge that it is possible, and sometimes best, that a partially undeveloped people should be ruled by the best of their stronger and better neighbors for their own good until such time as they can start and fight the world's battles alone. I have already pointed out how sorely in need of such economic and spiritual guidance the emancipated Negro was, and I am quite willing to admit that if the representatives of the best white Southern public opinion WERE THE RULING AND GUIDING POWERS IN THE SOUTH TODAY, THE CONDITIONS INDICATED WOULD BE FAIRLY WELL FULFILLED, BUT THE POINT I HAVE INSISTED UPON, AND NOW EMPHASIZE AGAIN, IS THAT THE BEST OPINION OF THE SOUTH TODAY IS NOT THE RULING OPINION, THAT TO LEAVE THE NEGROES HELPLESS AND WITHOUT A BALLOT TODAY IS TO LEAVE HIM NOT TO THE GUIDANCE OF THE BEST, BUT RATHER TO THE exploitation AND DEBAUCHMENT OF THE WORST, THAT THIS IS NO TRUER OF THE SOUTH THAN OF THE NORTH, OF THE NORTH THAN OF EUROPE. In any land, in any country under modern free competition, to lay any class of weak and despised people, be they white, black, or blue, at the political mercy of their stronger, richer, and more resourceful fellows, is a temptation which human nature seldom has withstood, and seldom will withstand. End of chapter 9, part 1